0: Hello everybody, my name is Honey and you're listening to FMB Radio. I'm glad you're here and thank you very much to everyone who tuned in to the last show. Just to recap, these shows called Respect My Voice air every other Wednesday at 6pm. Today's topic is racism against those in the East and Southeast Asian community. Firstly, I'm going to talk a bit about Britain's history with pretty much the entire continent of Asia, followed by some examples of types of hate directed towards the Asian community. Then we have an interview with a member of the team over at BCN about their work promoting positive representation of the EC community before closing with a reflection. Before I go any further, though, I'd like to share some numbers in case anyone is affected by the issues raised in the show. If you've been a victim of a hate crime and need support, you can call victim support on 0808 16 That's 0808 16 or go to their website, victimsupport.org.uk. And if you'd like mental health advice or support, you can call the Samaritans free on 116 123. That's 116 123, or go to their website, samaritans.org. And if anyone has any ideas, stories or suggestions that they'd like to share for the show, please don't hesitate to contact me at honey at So, let's delve into Britain's colonial history with Asian countries something which is worryingly under-discussed in schools. Colonialism was used in the region to set up a trade of the native spices, including pepper, cloves, nutmeg, mace and cinnamon. In the 18th century, the British became increasingly engaged in Southeast Asia due to their interests in India. By the end of the century, Europe experienced the Industrial Revolution, which created a gap in power between the Europeans and the rest of the world, including Southeast Asia. British rule in Burma, now Myanmar, began with the First Anglo-Burmese War in 1824. It's important to acknowledge the many horrific events caused by British rule. For example, the trauma caused by the Indian Uprising in 1857. This saw the commercial East India Company be replaced by the even bigger power of Her Majesty's government with the formation of the Raj. By 1913, the British had occupied Burma, Malaya and the northern Borneo territories. During the mid-19th century, Europeans had certain humanitarian goals in mind for the region, one of which was expressed in the slogan, The White Man's Burden, taken from a line in a Rudyard Kipling poem. This was clearly a prejudiced and condescending mindset of white saviorism, where the mission was to civilise the people living under colonial rule because they were perceived as less gifted. It's fair to say that the vast majority of countries under the rule of the British Empire were exploited by the colonial economic system, robbed of their vast regional resources and treasures, and subjected to racial and ethnic discrimination. From the 1830s onwards, the English East India Company had been interested in the tea and silk from China, but the Chinese only wanted payments in silver from the British. The English East India Company preferred to sell the highly addicted drug opium to the Chinese society rather than using its cash resources. This would eventually put Britain on a collision course with Chinese leadership, which resulted in the Opium Wars. China lost both these wars and paid a heavy price, ceding the territory of Hong Kong to British control, opening treaty ports to trade with foreigners, and granting special rights to the foreigners at these ports. Alongside this, the Chinese government had to watch as the British increased their opium sales to the people in China. The British did this in the name of free trade and without regard to the consequences for the Chinese government and Chinese people. There became a logic of expansion in order to safeguard the most valuable parts of Britain's Asian empire, India and China. However, a change of government to Labour in 1945 gave India its opportunity to become independent from Britain and started the dominoes falling throughout the region. The rise of communism in several colonies allowed Britain the excuse of maintaining military involvement in places like Malaya and Borneo, longer than anticipated. Ultimately, though, the loss of control of the Suez Canal in 1956 further eroded British power and prestige in Asia. Britain was no longer a major player and only held on to Hong Kong until 1997 when part of its lease was due to return to Chinese control. Now that we've looked at Britain's past involvement with some Asian countries, we're going to discuss some of the current issues faced by the EC, that's East and Southeast Asian community in the UK and elsewhere. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused and unmasked a whole host of prejudice towards EC individuals, from conspiracies about the virus being manufactured by the Chinese government, to increased violent attacks on anyone perceived to be Chinese, these events are not one-offs and encourage a dangerous environment of racism. For example, take the vicious attack on Noel Quintana in New York, where the aggressor slashed him cheek to cheek with a knife. This is just one of 4,000 anti-Asian hate crimes reported in the US this past year, although activists believe the number is much higher. Fetishization is also a huge issue faced by the community. While on the surface fetishizing remarks may seem benign or even complimentary, oftentimes they can reinforce harmful stereotypes that are already held about different groups. And even within communities of colour, fetishization can look like the glorification of lighter skin, colorism, and more Eurocentric features, or preferring a certain hair gesture. Robert Aaron Long, a white gunman, was very recently arrested and charged with the killing of eight people in Atlanta. Six of whom were Asian women. He told the police he had a sex addiction and that the spas were a temptation he wanted to eliminate. It's not difficult to see the intersections between racism, misogyny, and racial fetishisation. Appropriation is another problem facing many minority ethnic communities. The Cambridge Dictionary defines cultural appropriation as the act of taking or using things from a culture that is not your own especially without showing that you understand or respect this culture. There are unique fashions from every Asian country, and from different groups within these countries. The Asian community is not a monolith. But Western designers tend to co-opt and package up pieces as an Asian or Oriental aesthetic, instead of getting consent from and paying tribute to the specific cultures and people they stem from. Finally, microaggressions towards people in the EC community have been highly normalised and accepted into daily life. Some examples of this behaviour is believing that all Asian people look the same, perpetuating stereotypes such as all Asians having strict parents, or automatically assuming that an Asian person can't speak good English. Now that we have some background knowledge on the issues that EC people face, it's time for today's guest. Today we have an interview with the lovely Mayam Peterson from BScene. BScene, spelled B-E-S-E-A dot N, is a grassroots movement championing East and Southeast Asian voices. So, to start off, uh, how would you best describe the work you do?
1: So. BCN was founded in response to a noticeable uptick in negative media representation of people of East or Southeast Asian appearance surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic reporting. And then that led to an overall frustration at the lack of visibility of East and Southeast Asian people in Britain. So BCN is a, a women-run grassroots organization that works across two main focuses. The first one is advocacy for better and fairer representation of East and Southeast Asian people at the level of government and public institutions and private sector consultancy. And the second is a positive spotlighting of different East and Southeast Asian people on our social media and website platform. So the idea behind that is that we wanted to create a space for the community to Share their thoughts and opinions, and share knowledge. And so, a big part of what we do is uplifting community voices and trying to essentially channel them, channel those voices into digital content. One of the one of the cornerstones of our campaign was a petition started by one of our founders, Viv Yao, which was calling on the government and media. Uh, major news outlets essentially to stop excessive use of stock East and Southeast Asian imagery in pandemic reporting. A lot of us were noticing things like mm, news articles reporting on face mask regulations in, I don't know, somewhere like Leicester. And then all of the photos used would be these kind of generic pictures of East and Southeast Asian people. And frankly, we were quite fed up over it. So that petition has today amassed over twenty eight thousand signatures. And wow, as we were promoting the petition, we kind of realised that the whole problem of negative representation was underpinned by this lack of positive representation to balance out that negative attention. So that's why we founded B seen basically to reclaim the narrative and to put our voices and, and faces out there, um, kind of on our own terms, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's such positive work. So like you were saying, yeah, there's been a lot of backlash regarding the media Mm -hmm. disproportionately using images of members of the ESEA community when discussing COVID-19. So like how harmful do you think that this narrative has been?
1: I think it's been incredibly harmful. And I think that we can trace a line between damaging language and inflammatory language to damaging and inflammatory behaviour to hate crimes all the way through to really, well, unfortunately, as we've seen with the shooting in Atlanta last week, we see the culmination Mm -hmm. uh, of that deeply ingrained bias, I suppose, um, deeply ingrained racism, mistrust, that unfortunately is still present in quite a lot of people's minds. And it doesn't help that there are various politicians or people in the public eye who have exacerbated the problem by using inflammatory language, by um, throwing around phrases like China virus um, and, and things like that. And I think that all of these things, although they may seem small and harmless on the surface, when you put them all together, it creates this huge fabric of bias and suspicion, I suppose. And that ultimately can lead to Behavior, um, physical, you know, physical manifestations of, of that bias. And I think that coupled with people's general frustration, I suppose, with with the pandemic and with things, the way that things are going, I think that sometimes those things have bubbled over. And that's why we've seen, unfortunately, an increase in Racial aggression towards people of East or Southeast Asian appearance—basically anybody who's racialized as Chinese—because um, we all know that it doesn't really matter whether you're Chinese or, you know, British-born Singaporean or Thai or whatever. A lot of people will just racialize you in a certain way, and uh, and that's really the, the the gist of it. I think that media language, all of these everyday things, play into the physical manifestations that we see um, unfortunately that really touch people's everyday lives.
0: Yeah no definitely so do you think that there's been like a sort of normalization or a downplaying of racism to the Asian community within the UK particularly?
1: Yes definitely. Um, East and Southeast Asian people have faced racism and discrimination in the UK ever since the first migrants, the first you know the first Chinese sailors settled in in the UK, and I think the pandemic has simply lifted the lid on that deeply rooted mistrust, um, even if it's at a subconscious level, and has made it more acceptable. So I think that basically a lot of people have long-standing negative assumptions or stereotypes about East and Southeast Asian people, and then people like Donald Trump or Nigel Farage kind of normalising blame against people of certain ethnicities or from certain countries has made that more acceptable um and i think that there also is perhaps a culture of keeping your head down in a lot of east and southeast asian communities um and it may be a generational thing i think certainly one thing that we really notice is that with the The age of social media and information sharing and suddenly having more language and ways to talk about these things that families have felt for generations, we're suddenly able to organize and to put our experiences and our feelings out there. And it's not that previous generations didn't experience the same issues, but there was perhaps particularly among first or second gen um, parents perhaps more of a culture of just getting on with it and just you know keeping your keeping your head down like I said and just um, perhaps not talking about it as much so there are a few things at play there but I definitely think that there's been a bit of a, a normalization and it it means that some people really don't take um, anti and southeast asian racism seriously mm-hmm. they don't think that it's a legitimate form of racism whereas we know that that's not the case. Um, I, we At BCN, we recently co-authored and published a, a report in response to a government call for evidence on discrimination and inequality among people from East and Southeast Asian backgrounds. And um, if anybody wants to go and have a look, then you can download it from the BCN website. But there's a lot of information there to dispel quite a lot of the myths that people have surrounding um, discrimination of these ethnic groups
0: that's really interesting you spoke a bit there about um, how politicians um, particularly like Farage and Trump have uh, sort of inflamed this but in your own experience do you think the wider public are becoming more educated on um, Asian racism or do you think there's still quite a long way to go
1: I think yes and yes um, is is the simple answer. We at BCN alongside a lot of other East and Southeast Asian um, advocacy groups have been trying to raise awareness of this increased uh, racism for for since last summer, essentially. But I think that it's really the uptick in really violent assaults on notably. Asian elders in the States that has garnered a lot of attention. But up until the Atlanta shooting, that attention was mostly focused on the US. It wasn't necessarily considered to be a global problem. But unfortunately, it's taken a a really, really saddening um, tragedy that's an issue across so many different axes. Um, It's not just one of race. It's also one of misogyny and one of class um, and one of profession. I think that there are a lot of things at play there, but unfortunately that was a kind of a culminating point that made a lot of people sit up and realize. And even in my personal life, I have noticed a lot of non-EC people saying, oh my God, I had no idea. And now I'm going to educate myself. So yes, I think that people are starting to take note. But I'm also very conscious of the echo chamber and the kind of the bubble of um, online activism and online uh, knowledge sharing because there are a lot of people across the country who are, are not going to have access to all this information who um, still have no idea that this is going on and so I think it's going to take quite a long time to really reach all of the demographics um, particularly older generations there's a lot of work to be done there but I think that we've made a really incredible start it's just it's a shame that it comes off the back of some really horrible events you know there are a lot of people have been very seriously hurt people have died. Um, And I think that among the global East and Southeast Asian diaspora, there's a kind of sense of collective frustration because we have, unfortunately, a lot of the time, particularly when it comes to talking to press, basically been asked to provide receipts of our trauma as if it takes a a certain body count or a certain uh, amount of trauma for issues to be recognized and to be relevant.
0: Absolutely. There's been an incredible amount of loss in your community. And um, yeah. it's incredible the work you're doing to combat anything happening. Yeah. Um, so what do you think that people outside the EC community can do to uplift and support the community going forwards? Well, the first thing,
1: of course, is to support uh, organizations who are working for East and Southeast Asian causes, whether that's via financial donations or whether it's just amplifying their causes, um, dropping them into conversations. You know, you're having, perhaps you're having a conversation at work and you can say, actually, there's a really good organization that works on this. They're called blah, 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 um, sharing their content, just bringing them up in conversation, remembering that these issue exists, sorry, that these issues exist. The second would be, And we say this one a lot, learning how to be an active bystander and learning how to be a good active bystander is, um, I think, something that particularly as the UK comes out of lockdown, people will need to be very aware of. And just having a heightened sense that there is a possibility for increased attacks. um, This is what we've seen, certainly, when we look at the police data in terms of incidents hate incidents that are reported, they tend to fit around the periods where the UK has been in lockdown. So knowing that there is a possibility for increased incidents and racial aggression, and then also knowing how to support victims appropriately, how to intervene if it's safe, but mostly how to focus your attention on the victims to make sure that they feel seen and that they feel listened to and that they feel that there's somebody standing up alongside them, um, and I there's a lot of information online, particularly on platforms like Instagram, on how to be a good active bystander. I've also seen kind of a few webinars here and there about you know dealing with uh, with with hate incidents and hate crimes, which is really good. So I think that there's more and more information coming out. So um, awareness of that is 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 a really good. And then the third one, I would say, is to diversify your intake of media or literature or film or whatever it is. And I think that the more that we see diverse faces and bodies in different spaces, and we're conscious and mindful of the books we read, the films that we watch, the more we lose, you know, we start to shed biases uh, bit by bit the more we diversify our lives and yes there is an issue of a lack of diversity in higher places you know not seeing enough diversity among our politicians or a police force of course that's a problem too Um, but what people can do at home is to just be mindful of what they are taking in and that also goes for consumerism um you know i think people want to in general there's a growing movement of supporting small businesses. I think that people often forget that things like takeaways and restaurants are also local businesses. Supporting your local takeaway is a really great idea. Um, if you're buying things that are, you know, of East and Southeast Asian origin, just kind of making sure that the business you're buying from is actually owned by EC people and things like that. I think just being more conscious is really important.
0: Definitely. They're such important points. Thank you. So, talking about Southeast Asian owned businesses, on your website, um, ww.bcn.co.uk, there's a lot of really great information and content. And one thing that stood out was the interview that you did with the um, co founder of Little Means Mochi, um, Hao Yeah. Yep. Um, he talks very candidly about his struggles um, reconciling his Malaysian, Chinese, and British identity. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this conflict of identity is an issue faced by a lot of the EC population in Britain?
1: Oh, definitely. I think that it's. it comes down to the fact that, yes, while East and Southeast Asians in particular have a lot of commonality between their cultures, um, Asians overall are absolutely not a monolith. Even within one um, ethnicity, there's going to be so many divergent um experiences. And it's not only ethnicities, but also it's about where you grew up. So somebody who grew up in Singapore, and then moved to the UK is going to have a very different experience to somebody who is perhaps, you know, British born Chinese, and is, you know, born and raised in the UK and doesn't have family or connections necessarily. Um, In China, for example, there are so many different ethnicities. um, And it you know, our, our identities are shaped so much by where we grew up, where we worked, the people that we came into contact with, the part of the UK that we lived in, all of that shapes our identity. And I think that being kind of caught between two places is some, definitely something that is going to be felt by a lot of people, um, not just for people of mixed ethnicity, but yeah, people who grew up in a different place to to, to where they were born or where they went to school or whatever. Um And it's just it's really great to see people like Howard Wong, to see people um, putting out their stories and talking candidly about their experiences, because I think we take for granted that not everybody has a similar upbringing and it's really eye opening for people to see that.
0: It also must be quite frustrating, I imagine, to be lumped sort of into one group. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, So for those listening, there's a phenomenon called the model minority myth. Um, which essentially stereotypes all EC people as quiet, polite, very intellectually gifted, and so on. In your opinion, what is the impact of this way of thinking on the EC community? So, like, do you think that it puts pressure on the members of the community to uphold these stereotypes? Do you think? Or-
1: I think it's it's more that the problem it, it means that people and when I say people, I often mean people in the high-up spaces who have the decision-making power, don't take serious inequalities, um, well, they they don't believe them, they don't take them seriously. And the origin of the model minority myth, I think the earliest use that we see of it is in the US, actually. Um, It was a concept coined by the sociologist William Peterson, no relation to me, thankfully, um, as a, a way of talking about Japanese Americans who had managed to, um, overcome their, uh, hardship and, um, basically stop complaining, put their heads down and work really hard in contrast to the black communities. And we really seen it as a wedge between Asian and black communities and a way to kind of justify anti-blackness because, um, you know, looking at ethnic minorities, if Asians are—and I'm including all Asians in this mm-hmm. because the model minority myth is something that affects South Asians as well—if uh-huh. Asians are hardworking and diligent, then by default, Blacks and in the U.S., unfortunately, as we see, um, Latinos are lazy uh, and you know they 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 take the state for granted, and all of these kind of uh, stereotypes are pitted against each other, and it's really, really, really damaging, and it also like I said, it covers up really big gaps by treating Asians as a monolith. So we don't have very much disaggregated data in the UK um, at census level and in most kind of government police levels. We tend only to distinguish between Indians, Bangladeshis, um, sorry, Indian ethnicities bangladeshi ethnicities chinese and then everything else is other asian which is really really unhelpful because research done by independent organizations um charities and such actually suggests that there are different ethnicities that have completely that face completely different issues um mm-hmm. for example that bangladeshis and uh, vietnamese may have much lower rates of pay than perhaps uh, In people of Indian ethnicity, there are very, very different, um, very different gaps in the data, but it also assumes that all of the people in one ethnic group are representative of all of the other people in an ethnic group. So if there are, you know, a small percentage of people of Indian ethnicity who are earning a certain amount of money, then it actually brings up all of the other people in that ethnic group, whereas actually the majority may not be earning very much at all. And so it's really unhelpful to just lump people together in this kind of model minority um, vicious cycle, I guess. And I think that it, it just consolidates and solidifies stereotypes that people have. But I think the most important thing to bear in mind is that it's a tool that drives different ethnicities apart. And that's really, really dangerous.
0: Mm-hmm. that's very important to bear in mind thank you so if anyone in the EC community um, or the Asian community wider um, is listening tonight and relates to these types of struggles what advice would you have to them
1: I think that fostering safe spaces is really critical um, as we mentioned earlier it's quite It's been quite traumatic for a lot of people with the sort of global uptick in in violence overall. But also the fact of discovering more about your identity and, as will be the case for a lot of people, discovering that there's a lot of internalised racism or a lot of issues that you've repressed for a very long time. Perhaps you're unpicking problematic behavior or discussions with close friends and family members, all of that can be really, really difficult. So I think fostering safe spaces, reaching out to people who maybe can understand your experiences a little better. Um, there's a lot more um, sharing and bonding on in, among the online community, certainly at the moment. And uh, Hopefully once lockdown is lifted, then places like community centers will be open again, and there will be these spaces. Um, I think that if you can afford it, then mental health, um, you know, mental health is really, really serious. And I think that it's something that isn't maybe taken as seriously among a lot of East and Southeast Asian communities. So therapy can be really, really helpful to unpick some of this stuff, particularly with a therapist who is experienced in, um, you know, in, in unpicking multicultural issues with people and issues of race. Um, and just remembering to take breaks. I think that, um, One thing that we really try to promote at Be Seen is joy as a form of resistance and to just consciously take a step back, focus on the things that bring you joy, um, recharging your energy and, you know, resting your mind and your body, but, you know, doing things that make you feel good so that you can recharge and then come back to the work whether it's work on yourself work on your relationships or if it's you know activism work whatever it is um just be mindful of your limits and your energy that's what I would say yeah reach out to reach out to organizations you know there are plenty of organizations doing awareness raising there are you know free um free kind of workshops or talking spaces happening hopefully there will be some events happening in the summer who knows with what's going on but um there are a lot of organizations doing support as well um, and I can I can shout out some of those uh, a bit later, but yeah, don't be afraid <laughs> to reach out.
0: Okay. Well, finally, what are some aims of the scene going forwards, and like, what are your goals for the future?
1: Oh, that's <laughs> a really big question. Um, <laughs> ultimately, a really long term goal is we would just love to see more diversity of East and Southeast Asian people on screen. Um, for example, uh, you know, and an, there was an Ofcom report from, I think, 2018 on the coverage on BBC One and BBC Two between 6pm and midnight for a period of about four weeks. And there was something like 66 East and Southeast Asian people featured. And that's covering things like the news as well as sitcoms and soaps and all that kind of stuff, um, compared to, I think, between 350 and 400 people of Black and South Asian uh, ethnicity, which is not very much either but is you know it's still a huge gap we just don't see east and southeast asian people very often um in in kind of normalized ways on on tv or in books or in whatever it is and so i would just love to see more of that and collaborating with different media outlets or um you know getting to people who do the decision making um who make the hiring decisions who, um, you know, foster corporate cultures, all those kinds of things. And just kind of getting our awareness raising into those spaces is a a really big goal of ours.
0: Mm -hmm. That would be amazing to see. Well, thank you so much for discussing this and taking time to educate us. Um, we now have (laughs) we now have our 60 second shout out segment so i'm going to give you 60 seconds on the clock to promote any projects organizations or people who you think deserve more recognition apart from mine (laughs) (laughs) right okay stressful okay
1: okay so there's um and the virus of racism. They're working with um, victims of hate crime and they're working specifically on uh, anti-racism initiatives. East and South- Southeast Asian Scotland are doing incredible work. They also host a, um, a time to talk session uh, for people to come and talk about their experiences. The Southeast and East Asian Center, SIAC, Kanlungan um, Filipino Consortium, are working with uh, empowering Filipino migrants in the UK, which is really, really important work um let me think there's uh racism unmasked edinburgh uh it's a, a new well newish um new this year like many other orgs working with um anti-racism again let me think there's uh british the beats british east and southeast asian actors in on in theater and on screen um there's uh da, 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 da. oh this is stressful <laughs> um <laughs> How many seconds have I got left?
0: I mean, you've just gone over.
1: So oh, have I? Okay. You managed to achieve oh. it. You've done it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are so there are so many. I wish I could. I wish I had all the time in the world to talk about the amazing work that so many organizations are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I've missed anybody, then I'm very sorry.
0: Oh, thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you very much. A huge thank you to Mayan for joining me. Be sure to check out BeSeen either through their Instagram page, at BeSeen, or on their website, BeSeen.co.uk. That's spelled B-E-S-E-A dot N for Instagram, with no dot for the website. Now for our reflection. Mayan rightly spoke about the concerning lack of positive visibility for the EC community in TV programmes, films, and other types of media. Luckily, we can make a conscious effort to change this by, one, being vocal and speaking out about the lack of diversity of your favourite show, for example, and two, being critical of the content you personally consume and making a conscious effort to diversify your viewing patterns. Actors of Asian descent have made strides in Hollywood thanks to films like Crazy Rich Asians and Parasite, but these have been the exception, not the rule. Hollywood has been founded on disrespectful Asian caricatures or blatant whitewashing. Some examples of this are Katherine Hepburn's yellow face and taped eyelids in 1944 Dragon Seed, or more recently, Scarlett Johansson taking on the role of a Japanese manga character in 2017 Ghost in the Shell. One place to get started when looking for more inclusive or EC focused media is Netflix's Asian Films and TV page, but there are plenty more resources out there example, the two films I mentioned earlier, Parasite and Crazy Rich Asians. I have a few other recommendations. There's also the film To All the Boys I've Loved Before, Ali Wong's hilarious comedy special Hard Not Wife, one of my personal favourite films, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, which was directed by Cathy Yan, the classic Killing Eve, whose protagonist was played by Sandra Oh, Netflix's supernatural period drama The Ghost Bride, and finally, Watch out for the release of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which will be the Marvel Cinematic Universe's first Asian superhero. I hope you take note and enjoy. Thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure hosting for you. And just to reiterate, if you'd like to contact me with any stories, suggestions or feedback, my email address is honey at fnbradio.com.